Hello, and welcome to Connected by Life. I'm your host, Sean Paul Harrison. This podcast aims to foster thought-provoking discussions on crucial subjects that significantly influence physicians and our clinical stakeholders, especially regarding organ donation and transplantation. My special guest is Dr. Amy Eisen, who's a neurointensivist, the vice chair of hospital neurology, and also an associate professor at Tulane. Today is part two of our conversation with Dr. Eisen on brain death. And today we're going to really dive into the test results and how that's conveyed to the family after the brain death assessment. So in the the first part, we talked about the importance of preparing a family for the possibility of their loved one dying of brain death. And so in the second series, uh, what we want to talk about is having that conversation after the testing is done, which I can't even imagine what that conversation's like. So I kind of wanted to just get your thoughts on, you know, you've prepared the family, you've done the testing, and now you're going and talk to the family about the results and what that experience is like. I think it's kind of Again, multiple different ways this can happen. The way I prefer it is if the family is able to be present, right? So then there's no before and after. It's a before and during. And as soon as it's over, I get to run away. (laughs) (laughs) I appreciate (laughs) that. But that's not always how it goes. And so I'll talk about the during portion, which if I'm preparing everybody before, when we go in the room is the drawing portion, and everybody is allowed to stay in if they like or leave if they get too emotional. I believe in using a checklist for brain death. It is a procedure that needs to be accurate and correctly done 100% of the time. So there is no room for error or a misstep during brain death examination. So I print out the checklist. Um, it's available from the American Academy of Neurology website. And I give it to the person who has the least experience in the room. So sometimes that's a medical student. This year it was the very first day that the medical student was ever in the hospital, and I handed her a brain death (laughs) checklist. (laughs) Um, And sometimes it's a nurse who is training. Um, But I choose the person who has the least amount of experience because there's a couple of different reasons. One is that that person probably has never seen it before. And it's an excellent teaching opportunity, and it empowers that person to speak up when they see something that can be done differently. Also, they don't make an assumption that I did everything correctly. So I actually have to say out loud what I'm doing so that they can hear and know to check it off, as opposed to someone who has experience, and when I shine a light in their eyes, they'll just mark off the people portion. Anticipating. Yeah, they're anticipating what I'm doing. So I choose the person who has the least amount of experience, and I give them the checklist, and then I just say what I do out loud, specifically testing you know, for central pain, peripheral pain. I'll say proximal and distal so that they can make sure that that portion is acknowledged, pupils, corneals, et cetera. Um, but it, it forces me to say every portion of the exam out loud, and that is for everybody in the room. So that's for the person with the checklist, that's for every nurse, And it's for the family as well, because if they're in there, then they get to hear exactly what we're doing. And even before that, I should say that um, the checklist also has a prerequisite criteria. And so I invite the family to look over my shoulder at the computer um, when I am looking at the urine drug screen so that they can know that I've done every portion of the, the task appropriately. 
Um, I think it builds trust and transparency. Um, so I just show them exactly what the papers are and what I'm doing and what is already documented with nothing to hide. I can imagine, and I don't mean to stop you there, but I'm just envisioning myself as as a family member, not that I can be mm-hmm. in their shoes, but I'm just saying as far as for this conversation. And you going through, one is that you have this paperwork that you know that you're going by, and mm-hmm. then also that you're verbalizing the things that you're doing and the result of them. Mm-hmm. And as a family, just like you said, it's building trust, but you know, just a thoroughness of what you're going through so that it can't, I'm not saying it doesn't leave any questions, mm-hmm. and we'll get to that later, right. but that almost it's it's helping to avoid that, you know, for a family yeah, it's and for them not to have to make a decision, you mm-hmm. know, and, you know, we'll talk about the outcome of the test. Yeah, no, I think that um, the only way to, to have understanding for this is to have real true understanding is to see it and probably to see it more than once. And obviously these families, I hope only have one opportunity to ever see this, but, but for our medical students and other medical personnel, um, regardless of what your role is, you one and done is not enough to understand what is really happening with brain death and really how to do brain death examination. And I guess I can, if you would allow me to give another plug, there is some push um, and actually the world brain death guidelines from 2020 recommended that everyone who declares someone dead by neurologic criteria actually has formal training in it. And so the Neurocritical Care Society has an online training course for declaring people brain dead. And there's um, a move towards simulation. Um, So they're making that into a live um, simulation course and a couple of other live courses to come. But certainly um, knowing what you're doing when you're doing this is the only way possible. And we've had, I mean, I think, you, so you're an active member of our physician engagement subcommittee, and that was one of the first things that we even addressed when mm-hmm. we came together. Mm-hmm. The topic was just the consistency and accuracy of declaring brain death. Right. And so it was also to be a resource for other physicians and other facilities that don't necessarily have this patient you know, demographic, like as far as for, you know, they're not going to get the traumas. Right. You know, it might be an anoxic brain injury or whatever the case may be. So to be a resource. So having those resources and also for you all to go out and help them in uh, understanding how to properly go about brain death assessment. So, yeah. Right. Yeah. So certainly there's things, many things online from reputable organizations, including, again, American Academy of Neurology and uh, Neurocritical Care Society, both of which have um, dedicated websites to declaring patients brain dead and different um, programs, whether it be a PowerPoint presentation or webinars or um, actually there's multiple webinars that are available for physicians and even other members of the healthcare team that are helping to provide care for these patients. There's one from nursing, I think that came out from AEN not that long ago. So you referenced like the residents, but you're also, mm-hmm. we're talking about being in the room, mm-hmm. you're with the family, mm-hmm. you have nurses, residents, whatever the case may be. And as you're going through this or after you've completed it, are there any questions that you generally get afterwards? One of the things that I was taught when I was an intern, I think, was to always say time of death, to use those words. And to not use euphemisms of death, whether it be they passed on or what other euphemisms. We have many in the English language and certainly in this culture, but to not use any euphemisms at all and to be very direct about time of death. And so it doesn't matter for me if I'm declaring someone dead by cardiac criteria or neurologic criteria. I always say time of death. And so 
uh, waiting for the arterial blood gas after apnea tests. Um, and when I receive the arterial blood gas, I usually receive it in my hand. Um, even if there's another physician in the room, they usually give it to me. <laughs> <laughs> and I say time of death. And I show them the time stamp on the arterial blood gas, which is your time of death. It's the second arterial blood gas where there's an appropriate rise of CO2. Um, I guess that I should also back it up that for patients who are eligible for donation in any way at my facilities, we always have two physicians present for the initial brain death examination so that there is no need for anyone to go back and repeat any testing. So to have two physicians present from the beginning prevents any problems and complications that may happen later. And so you, the question was, do I get any questions at the end? <laughs> no, that's okay. But the answer is not usually. Yeah. People have a pretty good understanding. And the, the biggest question I get is, that's it? And I say yes. Then I typically walk away. And it's usually, I, I said this before in the other podcast, but I try to do brain death at the end of the day when I'm sure that everybody else is taken care of and, and everybody, and I can be more calm and, and have more time that's predicted um, and I'm not rushing to another event. And then I leave the unit. Then I really walk away because the person has died. And having two physicians from the outset so that two people can walk out and say, family, patient advocate, you may proceed with whatever you are going to do or my paperwork is done. Basically, from what we covered first, the preparation right. and everything. And then my question to you is if you get questions and you just said you generally don't. So I think that your preparation has really helped provide those families to avoid any doubts or anything else that they have so they can move. It's still it's still difficult for them. Sure. It's still a death. Absolutely. But you know they're wondering like now what's next. Mm -hmm. And so with that you were talking about, you know, um, you leaving the unit, I think it's, you know, you've done much more than that. And, and the communication that you've had, you know, now we're, I guess we're moving more towards, you know, I know it was all about the preparation and the conversation of brain death, but now we're moving into, you know, this topic of, you know, if there's an opportunity of donation for mm -hmm. uh, this person that has died in this family uh, and save the lives of those in need. And so you were talking about just leaving. And so, I mean, as far as for us, you know, yes, there's, a separate conversation, mm -hmm. but you all are such a huge part of this process and the communication that goes before that because obviously we've talked about, you know, the family's understanding if this person is a candidate for donation and those types of things. And then trying to decouple those things so the family has time to absorb the news that you've provided and making sure that they don't have questions before the family advocate comes in and provides the information about donation for their family. How has that experience been for you as far as for, you know, being involved in uh, the donation process and, and those lives that are being saved through it? Um, <laughs> that's a good question that I, I wasn't really anticipating, but <laughs> I can tell you why I'm involved in it, maybe. I had the privilege of having a multidisciplinary f training experience um, in internal medicine and in neurology. And then during my fellowship, we cared for all different types of patients in the ICU. And that included pre-transplant patients. And so the pre-transplant and post-transplant patients and the neurologically injured patients in the hospital that I trained in as a fellow were not separated. And when you were on call at night, you were taking care of both. Mm -hmm. And I'm not saying, you know, we obviously decouple 
um, pronouncing people brain dead from the transplant team. And so that was not the case, right? I want to make that clear. It was not the case that I was taking care of somebody who was brain dead and then subsequently taking their organs and giving it to somebody else. That was not the case. It was just that they were in the same unit. So there was one night in particular that I had a patient who needed a liver. And this was at um, University of California in San Francisco. And at the time, their liver transplant criteria said specifically that they would not transplant someone who was intubated. And I'm not sure if that's changed in the past 10 years, but that was the case then. And so we would have patients who were severely encephalopathic who needed to be maintained without an airway. And I had one patient who had, um, of course, lovely family, all the things, decline of his neurologic status to the point of coma while I was on call in a 12-hour period. And I stayed there all night holding his jaw open. And the next morning, the liver came. And then the next day when I came back to call, he was fine. And so it wasn't about being an advocate for um, donation or brain death. It's more that transplant changes so many people, and you could see them totally reverse in a way that um, in 12 hours. I mean, you just I took off for less than 10 hours, and I came back, and he's talking to me. And so... It's just part of the cycle of helping people. Well, I, I appreciate you sharing that story. And I think when I asked the question, which wasn't really in the deck or anything, either, <laughs> I was like just being organic, I guess, with this conversation, was early on you were talking about when you do the test, you have the conversation, and then you run out of the room. This was, I guess, more about seeing you all as someone that's experiencing a loss, Oh, honestly. yeah. And I mean, we've we've identified the family mm-hmm. and and the loss that they're going through, but also in recognizing it for you all. And I guess what what I mean, advocate is the advocate of something good coming out of something that is so horrific, you know, for that family and that potential recipient that wouldn't have received the transplant. And then and for you all to know that something good is happening. You know, because of it and, and maybe even meeting these families yeah. again, I, you know, and it's a different conversation, right? Well, I'll tell you this. Um, we do a lot of, um, you know, my work with Lopa, we've I've met a lot of families who have given in our donor families. Um, but unless you have seen someone thrive because of being a recipient, <laughs> it's still the donor families. Um, certainly find the silver lining in their grief. But having someone thrive is, for me, the real call to action, mm-hmm. right? That that we can actually help people live normal, healthy lives after donation. You have to remember that part of it. For me, as someone who takes care of lots of patients who have bad outcomes and who, are, who could have a bad outcome, I don't want to say that all my patients have bad outcomes. Not, yeah, you know, I have I have some patients that certainly do quite well, but... But when there is a bad outcome, I think we all find a way to sort of segment that off or to deal with that in some way. So for me, when someone's, whether they're brain dead or they have cardiac death, emotionally, um, it's about the same, but I do think about the greater good. And that's one of the things that we continue to try to work hard at doing, being committed and dedicated, because I know that you've often heard that you may not see that person in front of you, that that family mm-hmm. whose loved one has been saved, but they're there, mm-hmm. you know. And um, 
Yeah. That's what we want to continue to remind you because, you know, that's a part of what you all are doing. So I, I do appreciate you being transparent with your feelings. <laughs> so that wasn't the intention of uh, this episode. That was but, not what I thought we were talking about. <laughs> <laughs> you never know. You just never know. But uh, Do we answer all the real questions? <laughs> but no, I, I really appreciate you coming on and, and, and everything that you do, um, you know, whether it's with the staff, with the with the hospital, with LOPA, with the community, um, and with your teaching. I think that's, like I said, you know, I think that's that's how we started this, this segment of in the first part was just your gift to teaching other people. And it's not something that everyone has. And, you know, um, I know that I've been impacted by it. So thank you very much. Thank you. We appreciate you listening, and remember, you can register as an organ, eye, and tissue donor anytime at registerme.org. And as always, if you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to Connected by Life on your favorite podcast app. Remember, you are a light worker. Keep shining. This is a production of LOPA. The content in this podcast is intended for informational purposes only and not intended to substitute for professional medical advice. To read our full disclaimer, please visit our website. The Connected by Life podcast is hosted by myself, Sean Paul Harrison. Our executive producer is Kirsten Heinz. Our production assistant is Chandra Williams. And we are recorded, engineered, and mixed in our Covington, Louisiana studio by Troy Perez.